I'm not sure how our uh, online recording will operate without the microphone sending a signal, uh, but we're pressing ahead. Uh, we are here to hear from God's word, and that we shall do, and uh, we'll have a, a, a localized recording to share later on for those who might have missed it. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 8, Luke chapter 8, and we'll read a text that includes two events that are intentionally connected. Sometimes we read the Bible uh, as, as though it was just a spice rack and we're pulling down this or that. We forget that it is written as literature by an inspired author And these two events shed light on some of the very same points to be made. So we'll do that as we speak of the powerful presence of Jesus. Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 22 through verse 39. One day he, Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples. And he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And when they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this? That he commands even winds and water and they obey him. Then they sailed to the country of the Gazarenes, which is opposite Galilee, When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demons into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion. For many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen, and those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gazarenes 
asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And when he went away, and he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading, hearing, believing, and obeying of his holy word. Amen. Amen. Being in the presence of power can be frightening. And you can see that in this text there are displays of power and there are responses of fear. And we do well to see what the scriptures teach us about God in this respect. I've been reminded in preparation of this material what C.S. Lewis wrote. How C.S. Lewis described the God figure in his Narnia stories. In the most important book, getting that story series out, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a discussion between these children that have entered this uh, land of Narnia with its talking animals. And the animals were talking to the children how things were bad, but there was someone named Aslan, who is the God figure who will come and make things right. So here's just a very brief discussion between Mr. and Mrs. Beaver and the children. Mr. Beaver is answering a question. Who is Aslan? He says, Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I'd thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Aslan, the lion, is not safe, but he is good. What a vivid picture. That was written in the 1950s, about a dozen years ago, a a contemporary Christian writer named Jared Wilson wrote a book kind of addressing the loss of that vision of God in his godness and his power. The, tire, the title of this book really flows from that C.S. Lewis discussion. The title of the book was, Your Jesus is Too Safe. The subtitle, Outgrowing a drive through Feel-Good Savior. Jared Wilson's concern was with this buddy Jesus that a lot of evangelicals teach. Jesus can be your buddy, and you can do things with him. He says that's perverted the evangelical landscape. We need to turn to the Gospels for more biblical pictures of Jesus. Here's here's one more statement from Wilson's book. With all the talk over the years, it's no wonder that no man is probably more misunderstood than Jesus. The great irony is that despite being the most discussed and confessed figure in all of history, no historic figure has been more marginalized and commoditized than Jesus. 
For many today, he is a generic brand, a logo, a catchphrase, a pick-me-up. He's been romanticized by countless admirers and sanitized by the Christian consumer culture. He's there when we need to lean on him, but a bit out of mind when we feel more self-confident. He's role model Jesus, says Wilson. He's therapeutic Jesus. You get the picture. And so he writes this book to say, your Jesus is too safe. I don't need to write a book, but we're going to look at these two passages in Luke chapter 8, and it will teach you that Jesus is not safe. But he is good. If you don't remember anything, See Jesus in his power and live in the light of that truth. But let's unfold it a little bit more this morning because it's my aim to present Jesus, the divine Son of God, not as some domesticated lion, but in his ferocity against spiritual evil, his authority over the created world. This powerful Jesus. Let's let the scriptures speak. Our first heading is about this first episode, beginning in verse 22, about Jesus calming the storm on the Sea of Galilee. And sometimes Galilee is called the the Lake of Galilee, the Lake Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee. Uh, And the disciples were there in a boat, and it's a wonderful miracle. It begins with this little boat in a violent storm. Jesus was the one who said, let's go sailing. Let's go to the other side. Let's get in the boat. Jesus was a carpenter growing up. But some of his disciples, several of them, were experienced fishermen. They lived in and out of boats. It was second nature to them. And they set out. These weren't just landlubbers. A few of them were. I won't name names. But they went out to travel across the lake. It was the best way to travel for their purpose and it was evening we know this because this is in other gospel accounts as well and at night a tempest came up a squall uh, one commentator called it a, a little cyclone and the sea of galilee is below sea level it's like a large bowl surrounded by judean hills and winds can sweep in and whip up a tempest in no time at all And it's no small tempest because these experienced fishermen are panicked. And they come to Jesus. It's been suggested, and rightfully so, that this picture of disciples and Jesus on a boat in a storm-tossed sea is a picture of the church in these days. Is it not? Let's plant that thought and we'll develop it as we go along and especially as we conclude. We're together in a boat with Jesus uh, in the midst of a broken world trying to serve him and obey him. Well, what happens? The storm comes up and the action tells us that they wake up Jesus. What was Jesus doing? Jesus was asleep. How could he sleep? Well, he was fully human as well as fully divine. He needed to sleep. He could rest because he knew he was in the Father's care. And so he's sound asleep in the midst of the storm. And it's not the storm that wakes him up. It's the cries of his frightened disciples. And they seek his help. 
They even claim uh, the conclusion that they were perishing. It was a real danger and a present danger. And they ask, according to another gospel, don't you care? It's not a very faithful petition. So Jesus, upon awaking, immediately, it appears, rebuked the wind and the raging waves. And it's still completely silent and calm. And that only provokes a greater fear from the disciples. Did you notice that, how it's worded? He awoke and rebuked the wind and the waves, verse 27, and they ceased, and there was a calm, verse 24, verse 25, he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? So there's fear, and then there's deliverance, and there's greater fear. I think we'll see that pattern in the next story. Please mark that. But they raise this question, who is it that commands the wind and the waves? How does the Bible answer that question? Boys and girls, you know who commands the wind. You know who commands the seas, who commands the snow and the rain and the wind. God, the creator of the heavens and earth. Psalm 65, verses 5 through 8. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of the ends of the earth and the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe At your signs, you make going out of the morning and the evening shout for joy. Psalm 65 or Psalm 89. Verse 9, you rule the raging of the sea when its waves rise, you still them. This is God's prerogative and God's power. And there's one more. And if you have your Bibles, let's look at it together. Psalm 107. And this is a great psalm. If you haven't read it in a while, I hope you put a bookmark and spend some time on this uh, Lord's Day afternoon reflecting and reading through the whole of this psalm. What you'll see in Psalm 107 is this pattern. People give thanks to God. Some trouble comes along, whether it's on land or sea. And when the trouble's bad enough, they call on the Lord. And he helps. The paragraph that we want begins in verse 23. Psalm 107, beginning... In verse 23, some went down to the sea in ships. Okay, here we go. And they're doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distresses. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Verse 29, Psalm 107. This is God at work, and how can you not see the parallel with Jesus and the disciples in the boat, who calms the wind and the waves? According to Psalm 107, they were glad the waters were quiet. 
and they thank the Lord. In the New Testament, they're glad, I'm sure, but they're also in awe and greater fear and reverence. Who is this? So the third point on this first heading is, is this very question. Back in Luke chapter 8, they say, Who is this that he commands even winds and waters? And they obey. And they obey. Luke is writing this gospel to raise that very question. That's one of those moments where uh, in modern book publishing, there'd probably be a pull quote on the side with that question because it stands out. It's a significant turning point. Luke is telling us who Jesus is. His physical human birth and roots his call to ministry, the voice from heaven at his baptism, his miracles, what he says about himself. This is the purpose of Luke's gospel. Who is this man? And the disciples who had followed him and were getting to know him were still working on the answer. And I think we can sympathize. Perhaps you've been following Christ for a while and now you're an adult or uh, uh, some other phase of life or some other circumstance and it has provoked your understanding. Can God really help me in the midst of this? Perhaps you, you waited too long and called out to him at the last moment and you're surprised at his blessing and help. The guys in the boat on the troubled sea is a picture of the church. It's a picture of where we're often at. And we do well to ask and answer this question, who is Jesus? And before we fully answer the question, Luke takes us into another related story where there's danger and fear, deliverance, and then there's some fear after that. The parallels are uncanny. So we're not going to dwell on all the little details, you know, how many uh, chains could the demoniac break and all of those things. But let's look at how Jesus rules all his spiritual enemies, beginning in verse 26 of Luke chapter 8. They sailed to the different country across from Galilee. And in the Bible, the Gerasenes is sometimes called the Gadarenes or the Gergesenes. You can see there's a footnote in the ESV in those translations. Archaeologists have worked this out. They know roughly the place and the area. It's not necessarily in the promised land. It's across from Galilee, predominantly a land where Gentiles were, especially where the pigs were being raised. And there Jesus encounters uh, a man. We don't know his name. The name never comes up from the man. He's called a demoniac meaning he is filled with a demon or more than one demon. This demoniac is violent and dangerous. This is not just a a madman that we can cross the street and get around. This is a violent whirlwind cyclone of a man. If you've ever seen videos online or that go viral where some uh, uh, dangerous criminal is on drugs and by his power there can be five policemen hanging on him and he's still tossing them about. 
These, these are guys who know what they're doing trying to restrain someone who's filled with some powerful drug. The writer of this gospel is Dr. Luke, and he knows that this man is not high on drugs, that he's observed what's going on here and, and recognizes demon possession as he hears this conversation, and he reports it to us. This man is, is demon-possessed, and he has great power, and he's dangerous. He lives apart from the community. He's not normal in all those respects. But it's the demon who speaks to Jesus. Jesus had said, uh, let's be careful with the words, uh, uh, <clears throat> verse 27, when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. Verse 28, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. Verse 29, for he, Jesus, had commanded the unclean spirit, to come out of the man. So when Jesus lands, Jesus spoke first. He sees what's going on, and he initiates. So the demons speak to Jesus when they see who it is, and they know who it is. Isn't it interesting? There's no question of identity in this version of the story today. The disciples were still piecing things together, but these demons who had possessed this man and who were speaking through this man knew exactly who Jesus was and give him the robust title, Jesus, Son of the Most High God, who had power over them. Don't torment me. They knew exactly who he was. That shouldn't surprise us. We're instructed by James chapter 2, verse 19, that even demons believe about Jesus and they shudder. And the best way to describe that is they believe about Jesus. They don't believe in Jesus. They don't trust him for help and deliverance. They just know who he is. They believe the truth about him but they are at arm's length or further from him. We should note that even today, demons are active in our world. Demons are fallen angels. They are spiritual beings. They're not ghosts of men, who, men and women who died. They're created beings that were angels, and with Lucifer, Satan fell from heaven. They are judged. There's no redemption for them. They know their end is coming. God created a place for them, hell, the abyss, and they know what's coming. But they're acting out nonetheless with their evil plans and intents. They're, oh, it's tough to put it one way or the other. We see a great abundance of demonic activity during the incarnation of Jesus on the earth. That's the climax of the great spiritual warfare in the Bible. It's as though Satan said, boy, maybe I can mess up this plan and the, the story will end differently. But it doesn't. Satan had tripped up Adam and Eve when they sinned. But the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, persevered and rebuffed the evil one and confirmed their destruction and end is sure. This picture, by the way, is a picture of something for us. This demon-possessed man, if you will, bear with me, is a picture of humanity in our sin. 
Not that we're crazy, demoniac, bursting chains and acting out, but it is a picture that illustrates our plight in our sins when we are yet apart from Christ. The preacher Phil Riken says it this way, even in all his ministry, we can see ourselves in his situation because sin has similar effects on all of us. It exposes us naked in our guilt, he says. It alienates us from one another, leaving us lonely and alone. It makes us violent, at least in our attitudes, if not in our actions. Spiritually speaking, we walk among the dead. Thus, says Riken, this madman in the graveyard shows the wretchedness of our condition outside of Christ. It's a very clear and vivid picture. The Bible doesn't soft-pedal anything. Here's sin with all its warts and its dangers. Oh, the danger of sin, the ugliness of sin. Sin is not mold on bread in the cabinet that you just get rid of. Sin is alive and dangerous, and it has a corrupting influence in the hearts and minds of human beings. It's this dangerous. So we do well to remember the the picture we're given. Well, the action of this second story is instructive. There's, There's fear, and then there's deliverance, and then there's more fear. There's a little deja vu here, but it's a different setting and and different emphasis. Jesus asks this demoniac man, he's asking the man, it's singular, what is your name, singular? And uh, he was wanting to help the man, and the demons answer using the man's mouth, we are legion. If you remember anything about your Roman history, you know that's a term that describes a big group of Roman soldiers. How big? Thousands. As many, not always, but as many as 6,000 Roman soldiers formed a legion. And we might use the word army, like we have the 5th army or the 7th army, and they go on different continents and different tasks. It's a big unit. We know from one of the other Gospels that tell the story of the pigs dying, they said 2,000 pigs perished. So were there 2,000 demons, or did all 6,000 crowd into the 2,000 pigs? I don't know, and it's not really our point to find out. But what we do see are insurmountable spiritual odds, it would seem. One demon shows up, that's a handful. A few? A few thousand? This story is in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because of its great significance. It it seems overwhelming. Those kinds of odds. But it's nothing for Jesus. Just like he can handle a cyclone, a storm cell, speaks. And it complies. This shows us the incredible, awesome power of Jesus over spiritual enemies. 
They beg him, oh, don't send us into the abyss. They knew what is told to us in Revelation that there is a a, a place, an abyss-like place formed for the devil and his demons. But it is not yet time for that last day judgment. So they say, do something else with us. Why, Why the pigs? We don't know. We don't know the nature of these demons on earth if they were bound to be contained in some living body. We don't know. But they ask, there's a herd nearby, and Jesus gives them permission. And the demons possessing those pigs ran them into the sea, a suicidal uh, mass event. Not that Jesus caused, but the demons caused. It's ironic that these demons driving the pigs into the waters was in in essence putting themselves in the abyss of the sea, of the deep lake, as the ancient world would have understood it. Anything dropped in the lake is gone. That's where they end up. And perhaps that's the mercy that they won't attack anyone else in that region or, or occupy other individuals. Jesus does what he does for God's glory and for our good. It's a great deliverance. This massive army of demons is gone. So how do the people react? Verse 34. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, there weren't a lot of witnesses there, when the herdsmen saw what happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then the people went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They're all afraid. Some power greater than that nut in the cemetery has come and just with the word has freed him and calmed him where chains and people could not. There was a powerful presence and they were afraid. And they come and they they look to see what's going on. The audience was told And there was fear in verse 34 when they understand what had happened. In verse 37, what's the phrase? Great fear. They were seized with great fear. When they start trying to piece together the picture, the picture which has Jesus in the center of it, like the disciples at the calming of the seas, everyone's wondering who this is with such power. The disciples were wondering with a disposition to believe and trust. They had come to Jesus. They had faith in Jesus. They had turned to Jesus, but they're still processing. These villagers with the herdsmen have seen Jesus' power, and they start backpedaling. And they come up with a request, a request for the status quo. Go away. We want things to go back the way they were. It happens very quick in verse 37, but it's an important part of the story. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerizines asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he, Jesus, got into the boat and returned. He doesn't argue. He goes. He has a plan But he doesn't tell them yet. He goes. Isn't that surprising? Isn't that shocking? 
that, that horrible man who had been troubling everyone is now healed. Why not some rejoicing? Well, some people think that the, the locals were upset at the economic loss of the herd. Sure, that's probably part of it. But there would be a greater peace, you would think, from having demons no longer living in the neighborhood. It makes some of us think, and it may have been Phil Riken or someone who got me going on this point, sometimes when there is such a great change in a household, when an individual comes to faith in Christ, the family's a little bit unsettled by it. Even though it's good news and it's great news. I don't know what your story is, but I remember when I was converted at age 18, my household started wondering what's going on. And there were anxious thoughts and there were reactions that were unexpected. One author puts it this way, the change is so dramatic that everyone knows it has to be the work of God. Yet sometimes the friends and family members who ought to be rejoicing respond instead with ridicule and rejection. They almost seem frightened to see someone read the Bible or go to church and start talking about spiritual things. Deep down, says this author, what they are really afraid of is to confront their own need of a Savior. They are close enough to see who Jesus is and what he can do. Bingo. But instead of being open to consider the changes that God wants to make in their lives, they find it much easier to send Jesus away. You may have family members that long for the old status quo, like that neighborhood across the sea from Galilee. Jesus, your presence, you you don't just fit in. You change people. You you make things different. I would say better. That's where you say amen. Amen. This whole passage, both these events, is about the power of Jesus and how we should appropriately react to it. So that's our third heading. Jesus rules those he saves. He rules his disciples in the boat. He'd given them instructions. He said, I'm going to be with you. We're going to sail over there. You guys know how to run the boat. I'm taking a nap. He was with them and gave them directions. But when they panic, what does Jesus say? Do you remember the previous paragraph? Verse 25. He said to them, where is your faith? Where is your trust in me? Where is your faith in God? How come you chuck that overboard when something else comes along? Jesus wants to rule his disciples in this room and listening to this sermon by calling us to walk by faith even when something surprising, even when something dangerous is whipped up. Saving faith needs to be daily faith. And so that's where he tries to move his disciples along. When Mark in his gospel tells this story, it's surrounded by other events where Jesus teaches them the proper person to fear. They were rightly afraid of the boat, in the boat of the storm, but they didn't fear displeasing God. 
the lesser fears overruled their faith and fear in God. Whereas Jesus has power to crush lesser fears. He has power to crush lesser fears. In 2017, there was an article on the Desiring God website, and it mentions this passage. The author said, God always wants his people to come near to him, which is why he sent his son. Only one person could properly fear the Lord in this world. He was a shoot from the stump of Jesse, who delighted in the fear of the Lord, citing Isaiah 11. Because of Christ, we can draw near with confidence based upon his perfect fear of the Lord. You see, the fear of the Lord is not about keeping our distance from God, but about drawing near to him with reverence. When we fear him, we come closer. Those disciples weren't running away. They were inching closer with a little timidity. And Jesus says, where is your faith? Your faith in me, your faith in my power should deal with those lesser fears. As that DG article says, when we draw near to God through Christ again and again, it means we are choosing to turn from sin. True fear of the Lord draws nearer in faith. Fearing God because he is God, but also knowing that he is gracious and merciful. That he is not safe, but he is good and gracious. And if you come in Christ, you need not fear. The story with the demoniac had an ending we haven't talked about yet. And this is a further teaching of Jesus. Taking the whole sermon today, Jesus wants disciples to continue to have faith in the power of Jesus, even in the storms of life. To the world, he wants them to recognize his power over those things that would oppress us and constrain us and set us free from sin. The villagers didn't see that. But to the man who was now healed, what does Jesus do for him? We left off in verse 37. Jesus got into the boat and returned. He left. But the story includes this, verse 38 and 39. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he, Jesus, might be with him. That the man might be with Jesus. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Jesus rules those he delivers and commissions them and sends them out to be witnesses, to be evangelists, to tell others what the Lord has done for you. That's part of God's plan from the beginning. One of the great prayers of Jesus, in John, the, the greatest written prayer of Jesus that we have in all the scriptures, is John 17. Hear this portion of that prayer in light of our sermon today. John 17, beginning in verse 14. Jesus praying to the Father, I have given them your word, 
and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus says, we're not all getting in an escape pod to go to heaven. I'm going, and it's good that I go away because I'll send the Holy Spirit, and everyone will have power from on high. So Jesus says, that's my plan, but I'm giving you a task. Tell the world what I've done for you. Tell the world who I am. That was his task for this healed man whose name we still don't know. I imagine Jesus and the disciples had just a couple hours with him as the villagers came back and gathered and the story came to a climax. They, they probably bandaged him up, gave him some clothes to wear and talked to him. I can just picture the beauty of that one-on-one with Jesus, the man forgiven and freed, able to embrace his Savior, and Jesus speaking to him, and the disciples chiming in. And although he wanted to be with this man, this Savior, he was told to stay. But he obeyed. It says he went on his way proclaiming, That Greek word is used often for preaching. And I could give you reference after reference. It's what Jesus did, proclaiming. It's what the apostles did, proclaiming. It's what this man did. Telling how much Jesus had done for him. Why? Not simply that Jesus had done that much, but he he firmly believed in the power of Jesus, the person of Jesus. You see, when you encounter Jesus, you hear his truth and you recognize his power and his true identity, how can you not serve him? We are always saved to serve. Let me bring us to some closing remarks. I have three. That's the way my brain works, and I see at least three here. The first one's very easy. Uh, whether you're struggling in the boat and there's a lot of storms in your life or not, the first application is always turn to Jesus in your time of need. That should be the no-brainer here. These disciples, what were they thinking was going to happen? Jesus, wake up, there's a storm. Were they going to give him an oar or a bailing bucket? What, What were they expecting? Maybe they just needed emotional support. You know what you do when trouble strikes. You want to talk to a spouse or a close friend. You're in a, in a difficulty. You, you want some sympathy. You want some support. My friends, Jesus is there for us. He was with the disciples in the boat. He is with us. There's a great hymn in our hymnal that Catherine von Schlegel, if I said it, Katharina von Schlegel wrote, you know the title, Be Still My Soul. I don't know what was going on in 
Katharina's life when she got to verse 2. But I know it's true in my life. Be still, my soul. Your God will undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Your hope, your confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul. The waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he lived below. You got a storm, you got a cyclone, you got a madman in your life. Jesus has the power to deal with any of that. That's the point. Jesus is powerful. He's not just a logo. He's not just your buddy. He is the Son of God with immense power. I tremble to say it. We can always turn to him. Always. Always. Secondly, let your faith in Jesus actively subdue these lesser fears. During times of stress and testing, your part is to keep faith in this Jesus. That's how Jesus was trying to help the disciples in the boat. Where's your faith? Keep hanging on. You can pray and turn to me, but you then need to trust me. Hold on to Jesus. How many times does Hebrews have language like that in chapter 4 and other places? Hold on to Jesus. Let us hold fast our confession. That's our job. To walk by faith. Walk by faith is not whistling in the dark with indifference. It's seeing the scariness and the danger and choosing to trust Christ. And a lot of Christians need to work on that. Let your faith in Christ actively lead you, guard you, and guide you. Say to your own soul, we will trust in our King, in our Lord. And finally, it's so important we see what Jesus told the the demoniac who was healed that we hear that because that's for us. If we've been delivered, if we've been set free, if we now have new spiritual strength and, and we have a testimony that we can bring, we need to tell the world what Christ has done for you. We're saved from something, but also to something. We've often had a sign, I, I think it's still there, on the exit door at this end of the building, you are now entering your mission field. I thought that was pretty cool. And you walk out saying, oh, that's pretty neat. I like that. That was neat. Are we going to do that? Are we going to bear a testimony? Jesus said to his disciples before he left this earth, Acts chapter 1, you will be my witnesses. That's our job. If you've encountered the risen, powerful Jesus in your life. And you recognize who he is. You must serve him with everything you have. 
whether he calls you to be a mom, whatever your calling is, serve him and live faithfully under the protection of his power. Our God may not be safe, but he is good. He is God. He is exactly who he needs to be. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, these pictures are so potent. Uh, The storm and fishermen and experienced sailors fearful. But may we identify and learn from your word. May we walk by faith, approach you by faith, and believe in who Jesus is. Father, forgive us when we have domesticated the Son of God and we have turned religion into self-help instead of uh, the the ark of salvation to all who believe and, and calling to others to get on board. Father, may we not trivialize our Savior, but know him, love him, and serve him. Father, we pray for your help in freeing us from the shackles of worldly constraints. Loosen our tongues. May we run with joy in the way you call us to go. May we press on and finish the race and please you in all that we do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.